Maybe he's cute. I don't know. Um, <laughs> oh, you shouldn't. Maybe we, we definitely had family members that were into the first round of the Satanic Panic. So yeah, it's it's possible. Yeah, I mean, we're starting the episode backwards, right? So um, <laughs> <laughs> I just started recording because I had feeling just just to say something good, and I didn't want to ask her to repeat it uh, while I was recording. So I just said, "Let me just record what you're about to say." Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. You can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes. So definitely become a patron for $5 a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. And without further ado, here is the episode. Take care. There have been a lot of Twitter eulogies lately now that um, Elon Musk is running it into the ground and punishing people with verification badges. Um, And I feel like one thing that I haven't seen in that discourse, and people talk a lot about how it runs on removing people from their context and then using it as a sort of humiliation tool or a, a method of dunking and to get your sort of ideological point of view across, even if it has nothing to do with what somebody was originally saying. But one thing I haven't seen is the way that um, Twitter sort of accelerates certain subgroups in like way into the future in a way of like, there are just certain identities that should not have been created for another like three millennia. Like I'm sure about it. And now mm. they have their own sort of um, the, this hyper intense um, uh, grouping so that their conversation is constantly evolving in a way that it is unnatural and shouldn't have happened like that. But then you have these conversations that just get stuck mm. and are like 50 years old by now. And we keep saying the same thing over and over and over again. And I'm very interested in that juxtaposition of like people from the hyper future and then people from the 1960s um, jammed together in a small space. And it's fascinating to me. But it's also like people um, who is weird combination of both. They're stuck in a conversation. The conversation not even from Earth. So it's mm-hmm. like, it's like it exists out of the timeline and it's stuck. It's like, I don't even know this conversation is from Mars. <laughs> I don't know where you came from. The conversation is very bizarre. I, I never even met anyone who thinks this way, much less a group of people who think this way. And you guys argue the same thing every um, single day. Like there's this, um, on Black Twitter, there's this conversation, which um, I guess comes from the past, but I don't really know 
really where it comes from. And it happens like every single day. And it's, these people wake up and want to talk about it, which is um, the idea that black men have um, patriarchal power. And oh, every yeah. single day, <clears throat> these guys get up and say, you know, the, it's the same thing, almost like a religious mantra. They say, uh, you know, um, black men face racism, white women face sexism, but black women have racism and sexism so they have double oppression. And then the same group of guys and women, because it's not just men, so I shouldn't say guys should say this. Um, the same people will say, how can um, police be killing black men so disproportionately to what they kill black women and the jail so disproportionately um, compared to black women? How can you say there isn't a specially gendered oppression for um, black men? Like, how do black men tap into the patriarchy? And you give a whole bunch of data showing that um, it doesn't say that black men are more or less oppressed than black women, but just the idea that there's no such thing as gendered, not only is there no such thing as gendered oppression for black men, but if anything, black men are able to tap into white men's uh, privilege and patriarchy, give all these stats about different differential outcomes, um, all these stats about different um forms of oppression that uniquely happen to black men that don't happen to black women who themselves face unique oppressions that don't happen to black women, all this stuff. And the people will just be like, and then, and then, and then, then, I can't hear you. They put like their fingers in the ear. The next day, they say the exact same thing every single day. And then the people hit them with the exact same proof. And I was kind of stuck in the cycle. And I finally just started realizing, like I told people, just stop sending me these links. If I send (laughs) this person any type of proof, yeah. It doesn't matter to them. Then I, I don't know what they're getting out of it every day, bringing up the exact same fallacious argument and then ignoring all proof to the contrary. But there's something, whatever the, this person's having, it's not really what it's about, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But to go back to your thing, I don't know if that's the 1960s. I don't know if it's a future argument, but it's so divorced from reality. Like, like I never thought growing up, I would hear people say Black men have um, patriarchal power. It's just kind of, to me, it's just... Maybe it's old and it was just, there was a weird corner. I think what the other thing might be is there used to be people that believed crackpot things, but they would have to sit in the corner of their town and stay, <laughs> on, the par- and stay on a park bench because they would never find a hundred other people who thought the same thing. So they either had to uh, get over it and leave it behind and uh, think normal thoughts or they had to go somewhere and be crazy. But now, no matter what crazy thing you think of, you can find... Thousands of people, I think the same the same uh, thing, and also find thousands more people who are susceptible to being persuaded. So, yeah. every community of, or, around any type of crackpot um, belief, you know what I mean. And I think that's a, that's like a, another problem that's uh, happening. So, there's what you said: people going all the way to the future, and these conversations evolving way beyond where they should have been. You know, people who are just stuck in the past where the conversation is not moving. Then these Weird people who are on another planet and not moving. And I think I think all of it ties into a lot of people are finding more conversations than they ever needed in their in their life. Yeah. 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 I don't know that it's necessarily even like a larger percentage of our people are are like intellectually harmed in some way uh by the situation. Like I remember just conversations with my family. Just the the dumbest shit coming, you know, oh, we should 
tattoo uh, people who have who are HIV positive on their forehead and send them to some send them to Cuba uh, so that they all just die and then you know the the straight people won't be won't be harmed. It's just like okay, sure, great Uncle Tom. Like um, it's just that sense. And I mean, my uncle's actual name is Tom. Not <laughs> sorry, I just caught that like yeah, a second too late. Like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Get, I was trying to get the. <laughs> His like, literal name was Tom. Okay. Oh, um. Uh. So. Um. So yeah. So I think, but obviously, it's good that for him that he's not on Twitter. Um. He and he's not, and humanity is um is receiving the benefit of that every day. I'm sure, but I just think that yeah, the 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 microphone aspect of it is just apparently there are just a lot of people who think that if you have a disease, you should be branded and tattooed in some visible place um, or quarantined and banished from life. And now they all talk to each other and it's very exciting. People send me crazy social media posts all the time from TikTok, from uh, Twitter, from different places. And while they're stuck on the craziness of um, the tweet or the TikTok, which indeed is usually, you know, as crazy as they claim, I'm always taken by... um, the amount of engagement. And, you know, I always say the same thing. I'm always like, okay, the fact that this tweet exists is not what I'm tripping out on the way you are because any single thought, you're going to find somebody somewhere in the world who believes it. Yeah. You you could try to string together any string of words into any type of logical nonsense, illogical nonsense. And somebody in the world has probably strung that thought before and and thought it, you know, at some point in existence. But I'm like, the great thing to me about this tweet is there's a thousand people that, agree in the replies and there's like um five thousand retweets that 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 blows <laughs> my mind more than anything and that go right now i'm reading a book uh by will summer about um QAnon because mm-hmm. um i'm supposed to have mom to discuss the book and i always heard the word QAnon, but i never understood exactly what it was i just knew it had to do with weird conspiratorial stuff so this is actually my first time actually understanding um QAnon because there's certain things that I hear the words and I'm like, my brain has too much information in there right now. Yeah. I'm not going to learn about this. Uh, one example is Carolyn Ca- Calloway. I've gone years <laughs> without knowing exactly what a Carolyn Carol- Calloway is. What Every a I see it blessed existence. You must <laughs> yeah. Every time I see it discussed, I'm like, no good's going to come out of me knowing what, what this woman is or why. You know, because the worst people on earth keep discussing her. So I just don't. And QAnon, but so I find out what QAnon is. I'm like, your uncle could have been a new QAnon. He, th- that thought that he had, Mm-hmm. He might not only find community, he might find like, like what I found about QAnon was I'm like, wait a minute, this is this is a crazy person who just posted and then just formed a cult just off of um this totally unsourced crazy stuff about pizza. It, it was just you know, I couldn't yeah. um believe is that is that easy like to form a cult. It used to take work to form a cult, you know. You have to do like a Jonestown and like you know, <laughs> buy property, you know, create a church, <laughs> do stuff like that. Just, garden, yeah, yeah garden, garden, you know. Uh have speaking skills and you, you know like but now you just sit in your basement no one knows what this QAnon guy looks like just spout nonsense and you know he's inspiring people to go try to commit shootings in real life yeah. it's uh it's crazy yeah yeah so your, your uncle tom could have be on social media with a following you know this kind of ties into one of the more recent um articles on your newsletter which is what i ultimately want to talk about your Newsletter is called The Culture We Deserve. We're talking to Jessa Crispin. And um, what I was talking to Jessa about was that I feel like the culture that 
we have that we do deserve is a culture of too much communication, particularly in the form of synthetic communication, pseudo communication, you know, in the, uh, you can call it um, content and converse- conversations. Those, those are the two things, the, the two C's, content and conversation, I think are uh, the form that the excess communication takes because everything in now is a conversation. Uh, even the, the stock market now operates as a conversation to me more than more than anything. It's just like you know people talk about it like a like a conversation. The bulls are keep roaring back with you know this, but in the bears is like we have to process everything now as a conversation. TV shows I feel like are made to talk to somebody, you yeah. know, either to pander to somebody or um to piss off someone like 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 a chud or something or, or or liberal, you know, like like a Ben Ben Shapiro is making movies for some reason. Oh. And, and, you know, his movies is not like, hey, I really want to make movies. I've always dreamed. I have stories I want to tell. His thing is, hey, I'm going to shoot a bow across the stern at the liberals. <laughs> it's basically, he's making culture war movies. And he, um, you know, Gina Carano, who got fired from that <laughs> Star Wars show? Yeah. As soon as she got fired, he announced she's going to be in the first um of his movies. And, you know, he made it and the predictor is like terrible. And, but the whole thing is basically he made the movie to piss off the lips. And, and I'm like, that's what kind of all art's becoming. His is kind of transparently that, but I feel like every conversation, every movie now is meant to be just the latest tweet in a conversation. And then it gets picked up on um, Twitter to, you know, like to be continued, like, like the movie ends and it might as well. end instead of having the words, the end, the movie should end with to be continued on Twitter. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> you know, same with, with, with TV shows. Like, And the article on the culture we deserve said the United States has too many writers by Robin Lowe. And I think that's right. But I think it might be more apt to say uh, the United States has too much conversation or uh, too much uh, communication or too many conversations. Like, because it almost like it needs the writers to feed the the demand for conversations, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but the problem is because it's all synthetic conversation, it's almost like trying to get full off of synthetic food. Like, like I'm trying to get full, but I'm eating um, wax lemons, you know? And it's like, <laughs> I'm not going to get any nutrition. I'm going to feel something that feels kind of like being full, but I'm not going to ever feel satiated, you know? And yeah, I, I, I don't know. But, but um I think that is the culture we have and deserve. Just one of um, excessive communication, but um, it's uh, a degraded form of communication, the form of content instead of works and pseudo kind of communication instead of like real communication. And the ultimate question I want to ask uh, that I want to structure this whole conversation around is, are we, it means you, I, and everyone else who's in some form of um, media is the answer more conversation? Like, are we part of the problem or, uh, or are we part of the solution? Like, like, is the idea, um, more conversations, better conversations or less conversations? Like, is it possible to solve this problem even with better conversations or do all conversations thrown into the mix, just add to the problem, even the, even the good ones? Yeah, we're definitely going to solve this through more conversation. Um, no, you know, I think, I think one of the reasons I started this newsletter after like, I just hate, I just hate all newsletters and I'm, and I, 
really spent two years being just thinking, I'm I'm not going to be a writer anymore. I don't, I'm middle-aged now. I'm going to get a dog. I'm going to get into like rare types of roses, you know, and um, start gardening eight hours of the day. Um, and I'm, you know, I've had my midlife crisis and I just get to get out now. Um, and then, and then I just got so annoyed that I, that I started a new publication. Um, <laughs> you know, one of the things that I, that I've noticed, um, and this is one of the reasons why I started this cursed thing was because media, especially like legacy, legacy media, they don't have any ideas left. You know, when, um, when Joan Didion died and her estate went up to auction, every single publication was like, I know I'm going to send some young Didion acolyte writer, some 24 year olds who like, whose entire Instagram feed is just like sexy selfies. I'm going to send her to the auction to think about. Joan Didion and the woman writer and um, aesthetics and all of that kind of stuff. Every the Baffler ran one piece, Spike Art ran a piece, the Paris Review ran a piece, and it was the exact same thing. And they were having the exact same thoughts. They had the exact same word count. Everything about it was identical. Then there was a Philip Roth festival. Esquire did a piece. The Paris Review did a piece. Exact same thing. Every time Goop has anything, a conference, a cruise, uh, Harper sends somebody, Refinery29 sends somebody, Cosmo sends somebody. I don't know if Cosmo still exists. That's like, I just remember it from the 90s. Um, but it's like, yeah, they they don't have any ideas left, but they just keep spitting out content. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll have slightly better ideas, I guess, is my my thought process. But it does seem like um, the there's an very old ways of thinking about art, literature, the purpose of journalism. Um, and these don't really work anymore in an internet era, in an era of... Um, I guess post patriarchy, whatever. Um, it doesn't really work anymore, but they're still able to monetize these old ideas. So they're going to run it until they run out of money. Um, can something else exist? I don't know. I'm not making any money doing this. So I must be doing something right. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's almost like making a lot of money almost becomes like a sign something's wrong almost because, yeah. um, all anybody has an appetite for is more conversation. And um, I was torn between calling it either the conversation epidemic, kind of like, or the conversation crisis, kind of like the crack epidemic or the opioid crisis, you know? Um, yeah. Because, because I think it's really like, like, a, like a drug addiction that has uh, torn across the community. You know what I mean? So I was either calling it that or... Should I call it the conversation industrial complex? Because there's such oh yeah, everything is an industrial complex now. Yeah, because there's a there's a whole system of uh, the whole ecosystem of uh, capital based around conversations. Uh, now everything is a con is a, is a conversation. Uh, I think maybe it's a mix of both. Like it's it's like a legal super addictive drug. It's like um, alcohol or what or what weed is becoming. Like so. <laughs> I, I, what do you call that? I guess, I guess, a, I guess a, a combination of a industry and and an addiction. I don't know if there's, there's a word coined 
coin for that. But I guess alcohol counts. I guess cigarettes count. Uh, I, I think conversation is is up there with um, alcohol, cigarettes, and now weed. Something that's um, super addictive and um, can be arguably kind of destructive. I, I know it's gonna be. I know it's gonna be controversial. Let's start a whole new show. I know it's controversial. When it's not progressive and supposed to be bad to say that uh, weed can be harmful. But I do think under late stage capitalism, uh, all the old tropes about weed, like, oh, weed is uh, not addictive. No one's ever done anything. Applies to pre-dispensary weed. This new weed that we have with these crazy amounts of THC, I think um, it's graduated into like a, into like a hard drug. It's, it's um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't think we can go. And it's not being anti-weed at all. You know, so I don't want people saying, oh, you sound like a narc or whatever. Like, like I'm fine with weed being legalized. I just don't think it was ever meant to be as strong as it's uh, gotten. And uh, I think people are like entertaining psychotic uh, breaks with like these dabs, these dabs and stuff like that. And um, but the, anyway, I think conversation has become one of those things. Something that's uh, highly addictive is um, we have way too much of it. And um, it's like an epidemic and it's uh legal which makes it even harder to kick because it's uh it's it's everywhere you know yeah. and i think right now we we're stuck with a bunch of writers who are themselves addicted it'll be, it'll be like um if if the police was the police and the dea uh was staffed by crackheads you know <laughs> and they're put in charge of like you know maintaining uh, order in uh during the crack epidemic in, in the 90s it would just be totally insane they would just yeah. be smoking crack in in the DA headquarters. Like, what well, what are we gonna do about this uh, epidemic? You know? Yeah, I, I'm I'm always trying to figure it out. I'm always trying to like, why why is the culture, um, especially around writing, just so bad right now? And I know that there's like a there there is a segment on Twitter. It's like it's because women run things down. They're stupid or whatever. But um, <laughs> like I really think that. There's something about um, the university experience at the moment, uh, uh, especially in the humanities, that um, do that it it doesn't really teach people how to think anymore, and it gives such a shallow engagement with with the history of art and literature because the past is now deemed as like problematic because that's the time of racism and sexism, um, and so we just have people sort of walking around with a very intense understanding of like the last 50 years of um, the world and nothing before it. And I just don't think that's good. <laughs> I just don't think that that's like a good way to, um, to run the culture of the United States. I, I think it's, I think. Yeah. yeah. Everything, everything is just um, decontextualized. Everything is uh, postmodern. And again, I think it's uh, even more like, okay, there's, um, I remember I was reading a book and the book, and I might've mentioned this on the air before, but the, but the book had a definition of addiction. It was a really good book on addiction. I can't remember the name of it offhand, uh, but I read it years ago and oh, I think it was called The Addictive Personality. And it's all about um, addiction. But what's interesting about this book is that it was from the psychological um, angle. So it wasn't a book talking about, hey, this is what it's like to be on alcohol or drugs. It didn't really mention any substance. It just talked about um, what it called mood changers. It, it it just used the word mood changers and it was very broad and it, it said anything could be addiction. So just being addicted to, um, you know, a certain behavior, being 
um, I think the compliments could could work under this thing's framework. And it made it very interesting to see it described that way because then you start seeing how many things in your life can count as addictions, but you don't think about it because they're not alcohol or technically a, a, a substance. So he said, mm -hmm. so what he said is um, you have a weird relationship to what it called a mood changer. And it doesn't necessarily have to even be pleasure, the mood that you're getting. Uh, but it says that first you have to have a compulsive consumption or, you know, engagement with the, with the mood changer. So the first element was, was compulsion. Then the second element was, um, was tolerance. Like you need more of the, um, you need more of the mood changer to get the same effect. So, so, uh, you can't keep using the same amount as to keep going up. And then the third thing was if you have a withdrawal, if you try not to use it, you go through withdrawal. So if you don't engage uh, with the mood changer, um, you go through through withdrawal. So what happens is um, you start needing it less to feel the mood so much as just to feel normal. So you, you might at first start um, taking a taking a drug because it makes you feel euphoric. By the time you're in the tolerance and withdrawal stages of it, um, you're taking it just to not feel bad. You know, it, it doesn't even bring you joy anymore. And I was like, wow, that applies so much to conversation uh, today, <laughs> and, 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 communi and communication today, like, you know, uh, including the content. Like, I I, um, I was going on uh, social media or absorbing content, not because I was like, oh, my God, this thing makes me feel good. But it's like, OK, I got to put something on so I don't feel like shit. So I'm just going to load up the latest Disney Plus show and just let it run. <laughs> and when it's done, I'm not. I can't say, wow, that was a great experience, you know, but it's like, what I say? Okay, you know what? That kept me from being bored and miserable for like 10 hours of streaming. Now I'm going to go have a conversation about how much it sucked. And I just jumped into the next stage <laughs> in the um, addiction. So I was doing this um, call-in show and it was about um, watching content and talking about the content. And I realized it was wreaking havoc on my brain because it was both sides of the um, addiction. I was, I was watching um content which is which is pseudo work it's a debased form of communication right there it just it's just made to fill a to fill a void you know just, just to watch then i was going having a, a pseudo conversation you know online about the content and i felt my brain uh deteriorating and i just realized okay i have to not do the show anymore i don't think it's it's good it's good for my brain to just watch so many infuriatingly bad things that just set up new infuriatingly bad things to watch yeah and, yeah and these conversations are not helping the world. But the scary thing was they were the most popular thing I think I've ever done. Yeah. I mean, people people really love the hate watch or hate read or, you know, or just listening to somebody hate on something, even if they haven't seen that thing. Like Yeah, it's like yeah. cutting. You know, people cut yeah. feel. Yeah. It's <laughs> it's uh it's it's artistic cutting. That's that's what it is. I want to feel something, even if it's hate. So Yeah, there's um there's somebody in the neighborhood uh, who, and I think, you know, I, I think this is a metaphor for a certain sort of form of of social media usage, which is they have a lot of very nice plants in their garden, um, but they don't have a fence and they don't have anything to protect the plants. And this is a neighborhood with a lot of dogs. And so then they put these don't pee on the plant signs everywhere. And apparently dogs are still peeing on the plants because there's no fence. There's nothing to prevent them. They're dogs. Um, and 
Then they start putting up these signs, these handwritten signs. Hey, sickos. Hey, shitheads. <laughs> then they put up cameras. And now they just sit on their porch, like waiting. And I'm certain that one day I'm going to walk past and they're going to have a fucking gun, right? Yeah. Like they are just so addicted to the anger. They won't do anything to prevent the thing that's making them angry because they want to feel angry all of the time. Like, that's the only thing. Yeah, yeah. Th <laughs> that's there's, it. Th there's that. And then the flip side of that is, and I think these are the people who are kind of at war with each other all the time the most. There's the people who are exactly like that, but with affirmation. Like, <laughs> yeah, they just want um, to be affirmed. Uh, to, th there's people who want to be triggered all day. Then there's people, and sometimes, actually a lot of times, they're the same people. They're just like doing both at once. They want to be, uh, they want to feel so bad, but the only thing they can, uh, instead of like happiness, they'll, they'll choose, um, you know, the, the pseudo happiness of just being pandered to all day. And then, yeah. um, you know, they want to feel righteous about something, but instead of, instead of finding a real cause, they just, you know, uh, get triggered by like silly things all, all day. And, in yeah. both cases, they just want to feel something, but because again, they're engaging in a degraded form of. Because um, I think everybody does need to be supported, and I think everybody also needs something to believe in bigger than themselves. You know, to to fight against. You know, people need something to rebel against, and they found degraded synthetic versions of of both, and they'll never end up um, satiated from 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 any of it. Um, it kind of reminds me, and this is something else. Uh, tied into addiction i'm actually gonna play it now it just came to my mind but there's this guy called robert uh lustig and he's always talking about the dangers of sugar and sugar addiction and he thinks like sugar addiction is like the worst thing and it's kind of funny the way he describes sugar is kind of like how we're discussing um communication which is like it's something that's um as big an epidemic as any other drug epidemic but it's also legal and there's a whole industry you know that relies on it that's ingrained into the fabric of our lives so it makes it a more dangerous addiction than even um you know um cocaine and stuff and then he had this thing here which that was pretty interesting and i just want to play it real quick because i think it kind of ties into our addiction to communication um i hope i've queued it up correctly because i wasn't planning to talk about it it just came to my mind hold on what the book is about in a way that folks without a medical degree would understand Actually, I wrote this book because we've suffered a crisis in our culture, and I believe it comes down to a mistake that we've made between the interpretation of two of our most important and positive emotions, pleasure and happiness. A lot of people equate the two, but I'm here to tell you that they are completely different. A lot of people think that they're exactly the same. In fact, on the internet, you can find definitions that actually conflate and confuse the two. So what are the differences between pleasure and happiness? And I believe there are seven. Pleasure is short-lived. Happiness is long-lived. Pleasure is visceral. Happiness is ethereal. Pleasure is taking. Happiness is giving. Pleasure can be achieved with substances. Happiness cannot be achieved with substances. Pleasure is experienced alone. Happiness is experienced in social groups. The extremes of pleasure all lead to addiction, whether they be substances or behaviors. Yet there's no such thing as being addicted to too much happiness. And finally, number seven, most important, pleasure is dopamine and happiness is serotonin. Now, these are two biochemicals. These are two neurotransmitters. These are two chemicals that the brain makes 
and uses to communicate between one neuron brain cell and another. Now, why do we care? So what? Well, turns out dopamine excites the next neuron. And neurons, when they're excited too much, too frequently, tend to die. So the neuron has a defense mechanism against that. What it does is it reduces the number of receptors that are available to be stimulated in an attempt to try to mitigate the damage. When you say to be stimulated, you mean to be excited? To be excited, that's right. And so we have a name for that process. It's called downregulation. And a lot of different chemicals in the body do that. Now, you get a hit, you get a rush, the receptors go down. Next time, you need a bigger hit to get the same rush because there are fewer receptors to occupy. And you need a bigger hit and a bigger hit and a bigger hit until finally taking a huge hit to get nothing. That's called tolerance. And then when the neurons start to die, that's called addiction. Yeah. And I feel like what he described has become our relationship to um, communication. Like, you know, if if um, if a work is uh, happiness, you know, um, then content is is pleasure you know if a real mm -hmm. conversation is happiness then these pseudo conversations we have are um pleasure like i think a real good work of art probably excites your serotonin like you know uh you need a break after you consume a good piece of art to just kind of think about it but mm -hmm. um content you kind of it just makes you want more content and it's the same with conversations you have a really good conversation i think you're probably good on talking for like you know the rest of the day you might just want to kind of bask in the glow of that great conversation but i feel like pseudo conversations just insatiable i think that's kind of the difference i think pleasure anything pleasurable when you eat it or drink it or whatever um you want you want less but if it's um dopamine sorry happiness you know you, you, you eat it or you know you get satiated, you want less going forward. When it's um, pleasure eating, you know, like junk food, mm -hmm. people eat like bags and bags of junk food beyond the point where they're full. Like the more junk food you eat, the more you want, the more you want to eat. You don't actually get um, satiated and stop. You want, um, you want more, the more, the more you consume. And I think that's all the communication we have in our lives is designed to make you want more communication. It's not meant to actually get you full. Yeah. I'm well, that's, that seems like why everyone is sort of in the state of hyperproduction all the time, right? And especially, you know, when I first, I had a Substack like uh, four years ago or something, very briefly, six months or something like that. And I hated it. <laughs> um, but then it was in this phase of it made just enough money that I felt obligated to keep it going, but not enough money to make mm -hmm. me want to invest any time into it. And Substack employees would send these emails of just like, you need to produce more. You know, you really should be putting out four oh. newsletters a week. Wow, and really? that's why you've plateaued. Yeah, like really. Yeah. Were these personal or were they like triggered by some kind of like algorithm? Like like they can tell you plateau and then they just automatically fires off. So at, at the time it was it was like personal because they didn't they were trying to grow their contributor base because it was so new. And so it was just like, I've noticed that you've plateaued, blah, blah, blah. You need to be, you know, the optimal publication schedule is four times a week, three free, one. I don't remember what the ratio was, but like, you know, in order to grow paid subscriptions, like this is, we've, we've, 
calculated, this is how much you need to be writing and, and this is how many need to be free and this is how many need to be for subscribers only. And I saw that and that was what made me delete the account because I was just like, I'm maybe doing one a week and that makes me want to die. And I to go into like, oh yeah, I'll just start cranking them out every single day. Every thought that I've ever had, like, how do you, how, how, how is one person, no one person is that interesting, Maddie Iglesias, like, I'm sorry, <laughs> but just like, no one is that smart, no one's that clever, no one's that unique or interesting, that's it, like, that's, yeah. You know, it's like, um, I was looking at, the other day, I was looking at ESPN, I haven't watched ESPN in a, in a long time. Because um, it's going to be kind of a weird thing to say, but in a weird way, I feel like YouTube has kind of become a place for better discourse, even though I think ultimately all of it is in danger of becoming part of the problem. I think YouTube, if you use it judiciously, um, has better options because you can go on YouTube and just find a guy who's just weirdly nerdy and obsessive about a topic. Yeah. And he'll just talk for like an hour, two hours, three hours about the most random thing and i'm like at least this is somehow rebuilding attention span you know because uh twitter people they cannot tolerate anything yeah. of length you know <clears throat> yeah um if, if you try to show a twitter person a link first off they're going to click the link to follow it if you try to screen capture so you can embed the video into a tweet that's the only way a twitter person will um watch a video <laughs> is if you serve it to them on a platter if it doesn't get to the point in five seconds, like uh, there was a one minute clip of Jason Johnson kind of uh, playing himself. And no, I made I made a clip. It was a one minute clip of Jason Johnson play, playing itself. And it has a very funny punchline where he goes through this whole spiel about um, billionaires and everything and, and oligarchs and, you know, they find defending Bloomberg. And then the ladies ask him a simple question um, that just basically forces him to undermine everything he was talking about and admit that Bloomberg's an oligarch. and Put the whole minute because I thought the lead up to the punchline, you know, made it funnier. It was it was it was like a nice build up, you know. Um, so as he goes on and like prattles on and digs himself deeper, only to end up walking himself into his own counter argument. Um, and it went viral, but like a good seventy five percent of um the quote tweets or you know whatever the tweeting goes long clip, but hang in there for the end. And I was like, it's a fucking minute. Like, what what are you going to be doing that extra 30 seconds? Like, you know, like how freaking degraded, you know, and addled by dopamine is your brain that, you know, you have to like apologize for sharing, uh, start 20 seconds too long. Like, you know, and I started thinking, am I crazy? So I started replaying the clip and I'm like, this is like what people really just are struggling with. Like, they, they had to worry that the people they shared this with, A, weren't going to make it to the end you know they're going to come back and just attack them and the second thing that they're they're going to be judged for sharing something too long you know you know what i mean like <laughs> like don't get mad at me guys i promise you this will be worth it you know <laughs> i know i said shared a minute you know i was like this is so, so ridiculous and I, and I was like like so so struck by it that people just kept putting that in the um it annoyed me to the point i just wanted to delete the tweet cuz i just couldn't stand each time people and the bigger accounts would say the most, you know, I'm like, okay, this, so these people, they're big because they understand. Um, I can't um, give these people any morsel bigger than, you know, uh, what they could swallow in one, in uh, one bite. At least on YouTube, you might get somebody who's 
um, do like three hours about why a 30 second commercial um, is the end of civilization. And the weird yeah. way is that's very artistic and weird, but I can appreciate people. <laughs> Maybe there's too much attention span, but uh, <laughs> I feel it's, I feel it's worse. Than, I feel it's better than uh, what's happening on Twitter. But I noticed YouTube is starting to go that direction of incentivizing people to just um, fill up the ether with nonsense like you know it's becoming more and more self-referential the way twitter is like now there's youtubes reacting to youtubes reacting to youtubes yeah and, uh and i'm worried that it's gradually going to become overrun with that same self self decontextualized self-referential um Ouroboros type discourse that uh twitter is now dominated by yeah yeah people doing live streams of them watching other youtube videos yeah i mean i always feel sorry for contrapoints for this because every time contrapoints post a video which is like once a year now yeah. um like there's this whole re this whole circle of reaction videos and me watching contrapoints videos or me responding to the controversy that took up 20 seconds of the two hour video and making my own five hour video about, you know, like it's really intense and everybody's trying to monetize everybody else's content, um, which is, I also find very fascinating that um, there's such this industry of anytime anyone says anything out loud, somebody makes a reaction video to it that has advertising or somebody does a clickbait, like 10 things we learned from the 20 seconds that, you know, Lady Gaga spoke on the red carpet. A popular one yeah. also is uh, a new trailer comes out. Well, well several Ooh. things happened, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we now have trailers for trailers for trailers. Like, <clears throat> yeah. Like, for example, there's the trailer coming out on February 22nd. Here's the 30 second trailer that's a preview of the two minute trailer. And yeah. I was like, oh my God, we have trailers for trailers now, <laughs> you know? And then, then they have teasers for the preview of the trailer. Then, when mm -hmm. the trailer comes out, this like five minutes later, some place like Screen Crush or Collider or these uh, umpteen one million uh, shill sites will have. A video that comes up immediately after that says uh, 88 Easter eggs from the Ant-Man <laughs> 3 trailer. And it's like, how do you, yeah, how do you yeah. find 88 Easter eggs? And I'm not exaggerating like to be hyperbolic. That would be like a real number. It's always a close to three-digit number. It never hits three digits, but yeah. it's always over 60 um, Easter eggs in any given commercial or trailer. Yeah, yeah. And it reminds me of what you said about like, the Lady Gaga thing. Like, uh, you know, it's... Um, it kind of reminds me of fractional reserve banking. It, it comes to a like fractional reserve of a conversation. Like the way fractional reserve banking, like a bank can take like five hundred dollars of deposits and create twenty five hundred dollars of of money with it. You know, like by by lending it places. I feel like conversations like that, like one hour of conversation, can be used uh, by the algorithm and discourse to produce um a thousand hours of of fake conversation. You know, like like we have fake conversation the same way. Uh, the banks are lending out fake money. It's all illusory. Yeah, and I really think that there's, <clears throat> like we set up a system where there's no incentive to create original work, right? Because um, everybody makes money responding to things, not making things. Writers don't get money <laughs> except unless they're writing, you know, essentially fan fiction for... Um, some other YA property. Um, real filmmakers don't make money. Um, 
and and musicians don't make money a real filmmaking is treated as an audition to yeah. join the content mill every time somebody wins an oscar or something for what seems like a artistic film the first thing people say is you know will this person get a, get a marvel movie yeah yeah i mean it's like an instant process P- poor chloe's out i don't even think i didn't even i don't even like her movies that much but as soon as it was announced that she was doing a Marvel film. I was like, Jesus Christ, like we can't, we can't have anything for one minute. I went to go see the new Kelly Riker. Again, like, I don't even like her movies that much, but she's like the crankiest filmmaker we have who just hates everything about the industry. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to go buy a ticket to this. And even if I don't enjoy it, just because yeah, she's not making any other money. (laughs) So I think I cut off your uh, thought last time. I hope you can re pick it up when you were talking about the Lady Gaga point about mm. um, you know uh, you know people make more conversation out of uh, less conversation. Then I countered with another example with the Easter eggs, but mm-hmm. I want to make sure that you follow that uh, through line all the way through. Yeah, there's like a whole there's like a whole clickbait industry around monetizing Paul Schrader's Facebook posts. I don't know if you've seen this. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen it. Mm-hmm. So there's there's now every time that Paul Schrader posts anything on Facebook, and this is because like he's a real, he's, he's, he's like Kelly Reichert. He's like a real cranky person <laughs> who actually says things that are um, sincere and sometimes meaningful. I hate Paul Schrader. But I respect him. That's fine. I'm in a, a position with a lot of filmmakers like that. But um, so every time he posts something on Facebook, the entire sort of like film industry clickbait, IndieWire, Vulture, um, Hollywood Reporter, whatever, like they send their best 22 year old to stretch the three sentences that he posts into 600 words and then give it a completely um, misleading headline paul schrader destroys woke culture in filming you know whatever has nothing to do with what he actually says and that stuff is deeply heavily monetized paul schrader is saying this stuff for free (laughs) it's great that paul schrader now gets funding for his films but for a long time he didn't right and so everyone is making money off of paul schrader's back and that i find very insidious about our culture that how there's just no there's no incentive there's no um there's no way for certain people to make money off of the work that they do but that everybody else is making money off of like distorting it um and i yeah i think that's incredibly bad for our culture um yeah, I don't I don't know what else to say there except for that that ends nowhere good. And I and I don't think that, you know, we have this very stupid idea of genius that like a person just is a genius and then they will be a genius publicly for our benefit even if they don't make any money, even if they don't um they're not supported by any institution whatever they will die of tuberculosis but we will still reap the benefits of um of their genius i think that's a really dumb way to think about artistic production that we can just abuse and mistreat people um as much as we want 
uh, and then that's actually better for the content that they make. I think that this is why all movies are bad. And now we have Ari Aster. I think we have mm. Ari Aster for our sins. I hate that motherfucker. I'm sorry. I hate, <laughs> I hate Hereditary. I hate Midsummer. I'm not going to see Bo is Afraid. Anyway. Yeah, it's like three hours. I'm kind of curious what, what that's going to be like. But I don't know if I'm curious enough to actually experience it. But, uh, <laughs> you, know what's, you know what's interesting, right? Uh, related related to what to what you said i've I, I was i went out the other night and i was talking with um some some people in in real life not not on the internet and um something that's been coming up in conversation more and more with people right like i spent a lot of time complaining about twitter right but um it's something that i'd spoken to you about right i was like i don't judge other people for using twitter i just realized that I just have this kind of dopamine addiction to like uh, pseudo conversation mm-hmm. that that makes it so that I cannot partake. The same way there's some people who could drink in moderation, and there's some people who is like they're like, oh my god, if I take a sip of alcohol, I'm gonna go on a bender. I realize that's me with uh, so I'm like I'm not gonna be one of those people that like, proselytizes to everyone. You know the person that doesn't watch TV and has to let everyone know, hey, yeah. uh, I don't watch TV, and and they always set you up and annoy you. They're always like. Oh, what are you watching? And you tell them, and they're like, "Oh, wow, that's interesting. I never, I haven't watched TV in years." And you realize, "Oh, you motherfucker, you just asked me so you could bring up in conversation that you don't own the TV, like yeah. you know, like uh, you don't actually care what I'm watching." Like, like I had a friend that like, gave a TV for a year, and he would always like set me up like that. He would always like, say, "What are you talking about?" And he, I'm like, motherfucker. After a while, I caught on. Like, motherfucker, you know what I'm talking about. You just want to bring up that you don't own the TV. I'm not even gonna. Uh, engage engage in this nonsense anymore but uh i'm like i don't want to be that person so i was so because what would happen is i would bring up the people that i'm not um on twitter on, on twitter anymore and i closed down all the accounts and then they'll start asking me the questions like are you gonna did you gonna uh we're gonna start it up again I'm like no i'm not gonna start it up again like i'm i'm quitting 30 days is gonna pass and it's gonna deactivate for good and they're like well how are you gonna promote the first the first thing they always ask is how are you gonna promote mm-hmm. the podcast I'm like, it doesn't promote the podcast. No yeah. one leaves Twitter. Like I put I, yeah. I put a link on there. Um, people don't get off of it to go do something else. I would have to bring the podcast to um Twitter in some form. Like if I did a Twitter spaces, people would stay on and do that because I'm having a conversation on the app, you know. But uh, and I, I use the analogy like it's like trying to promote your comedy show at a crack house. So, you know, you, you go to a crack house with flyers, and it's like uh, hey guys, um after you've done smoking a crack. You want to come down the street? I'm not supposed to crack with you right now. If that finish smoking this crack with you, you want to come down the street and watch my comedy set? No, no. They're, they're in the crack house to smoke crack. That's the final destination. It's not. They're not pre gaming at, the, yeah. at the crack house. That, yeah. That's what Twitter is. Nobody's pre gaming on Twitter at this point to go anywhere else. They just show up there just to um get the, get their micro dopamine um fix. So I'm like, I'm already not promoting the thing on there. That's the lie that I tell myself to stay to to hang yeah. on there. Right? Yeah. And. So, so they're like, um, what are you going to do instead? And they keep acting like I need to find a new promotion, promotional way to make up for what I'm losing from Twitter. I'm like, I'm not losing anything with Twitter. If I sit at home on my ass and do nothing, I'm getting as much promotion doing that as I got from like um, tweeting. Here's a link to the podcast. Everyone on Twitter who follows a link to my podcast that I tweet are people who already listen to every episode and they just needed to be notified that a new one is up, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. th- that's, that's it. I'm not actually converting anyone up and I've come to, uh, realize that. And then, so the next thing, um, they say is, um, they start going through 
the stages of grief or denial for me, you know? They're like, <laughs> they're like, they're like going through a bargaining stage. Because, well, have you thought of like tweeting once a day? I'm like, why does it matter to you that I, that I you know, um, <laughs> tweet? Like, like, I'm okay. I'm, I'm good being done with this. And they're like, well, what if you do it this much? Or what if you do it that? And I start thinking, maybe like their own addiction, maybe they like my tweets themselves, maybe, and they're afraid of... Um, losing them and i just think well just listen to my podcast you don't you don't need you know my thoughts are going to be out there you know uh but yeah it's it's very uh interesting and then the final step usually ends with them making excuses for wider on twitter even though i said i'm not judging you what like why they're staying on it goes well yeah well you know me myself i just use it when i'm bored at work you know and whatever i'm like why are you explaining i'm not yeah Judging you. I'm not saying, you know, it's kind of like when you stop drinking, suddenly people who drink around you start volunteering. Yeah. Um, Why they drink and why it's not a problem, even though you weren't saying anything, but just having you in the presence um, as a non-drinker, you know, makes them feel um, judged. But yeah, yeah, I don't know. I yeah, why no, I it's brought, brought that up. <laughs> it was related to something you said, and I just forgot why I brought it up. But. No, that's absolutely true. And I think that everybody knows that Twitter is bad for them in a in a real fundamental way. It's not just that it's distracting and that it's a waste of time, but that it actually sort of promotes um, bad behavior and scapegoating and decontextualization and all these other terrible things. But they've built some sort of justification system in their head that you're leaving now puts into question, right? Like, yeah, but, yeah. But- but you're somebody who uses it in perfect moderation. Like if I could use it like you, I would still be on it. Like 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 I won't see you forever and you'll come on and, you know, <laughs> say something about something and then just be gone for a while or just, you know, DM me to talk about something that I tweeted, you know, but uh you don't feel the need to like I have to weigh in on everything. I have to talk about the character of um the day, you know. And yeah. actually, I remember why I brought why I um brought that up uh, how it relates to what you were talking about um but during this during this conversation right i had uh, said like one big reason why i have to get off there is because i've realized there's a new national figure it's a new uniquely american thing and like everything else i'm sure it's going to spread everywhere else but there's this new creation and i think twitter and social media in general including youtube and tiktok i think twitter is really the heart of this um cultural problem and um where it started and i just don't want to be exposed to it anymore so i was like we have this new figure called the public dumb intellectual like everybody (laughs) wants to be a public intellectual yeah but america has become so anti-intellectual that you have to like if you were an actual smart public intellectual everyone would want to give you like like a wedgie they don't actually like people want dumb public intellectuals so we have this thing called the public dumb intellectual where it's like um you have a platform you go on your pontificate all day but you're just saying the most banal easy to digest um yeah nonsense so it's like the someone like 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 satra or something like that like like france i think kind of really created the idea of the public intellectual but the public intellectuals used to be generally very very you know intelligent but but they, they they created the idea i think of uh the public intellectual as a celebrity but people would show up to big auditoriums to hear people debate the most obscure complicated you know like i yeah. saw videos of um 
who's the guy that has all the signifier stuff that post that postmodernist um um i forgot his name the, the, the one that says everything is uh symbols and he's like one of the big uh structuralist the structuralist guy I, I, I forget his name but when you look at what he's talking about it's like um this sounds insane and people used to uh, i think it's a derrida people would mm. sit there and just listen to this guy the full auditoriums like listen to this guy just prattle on about um all this stuff and some people think that he's nonsense right some people say oh this is just pseudo-intellectual nonsense but i'm like maybe this is substance maybe it's nonsense but in that culture he knew he had to sound smart so he had to sound as intellectual as possible you know so there was still the requirement people yeah. wanted to believe they were listening to something incredibly um obscure and intense and hard to penetrate and intelligent and i feel like now it's less and less that they want something filled with jargon but it's got to be nonsense and that's what they and um uh, like Shizak, I, yeah 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 exactly i i um tweeted one day because i kept trying to read zizak and i just said i just don't get this i just don't get it and i asked people on twitter like can someone give me some insights of what um zizak um believes and what they got from him and then you think i like nothing or i got some nuggets mm-hmm. that i think were nice interesting thought experiment factoids but none of it cohered into a worldview or a larger um larger point you know what i mean i'm, I'm bell hooks is an example of that like people will tell me like yeah you know, uh, bell hooks is like such an amazing thinker and i look at it, it's like you know the body needs love because love is like water to a plant and we're having a <laughs> deficit of love but uh with love we can cure i'm like okay this sounds nice it's a very self-help and wooish but it's not like sylvia winter like it's not like some kind of serious engagement on race and culture or you know anything where you have to like read data or citations it's just like this is she shouldn't be called a public intellectual she's she's a uh, an oprah you know an, an oprah of theory you know that's uh which is fine we don't have to what what did to make her something else but that's what it is now you got to be a public dumb intellectual and that's what everyone i think is aspiring um to be and and the being dumb thing is a is a feature it's not an accident or a bug you know if, if, you, if you're not a dumb intellectual then you've done it wrong I feel like this is why, in part, Jordan Peterson is so popular. Um, I mean, there's always been a space for the con man. Um, but that figure who is like your intellectual intermediary, who's going to think about things that you don't have time to think about and process it on your behalf. Yeah, you're a baby bird. He's just going to chew up the food for you. And just Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Out. Like, it's... Um, we used to have people who did that in a rigorous, <clears throat> sorry, in a rigorous sort of way. Um, and now we, now we don't, we don't have that. Like if you try to read your just standard non-university press nonfiction book these days, um, there's a lot of first person. There's a lot of, um, meandering. There's a lot of, um, wasting time just not engaging with the subject at all. There's not somebody, you know, even nonfiction from like 40, 50 years ago, it's like reading, it's like, it's, it's like reading fucking Socrates or I mean, I know that Socrates didn't write anything down. Um, but it's like reading something like an ancient text, uh, so potent, so mysterious, because we just, we've just accepted this very, 
um, intense process of dumbing everything down and not thinking about anything anymore unless you're doing it in the most obscure way possible about the tiniest subject like the you know the ant fucker like i'm gonna really really get in there with this ant um kind of um intellectual process and it's bizarre and i think that that's left open this huge space for zizek you know i just think about um one of the few i think Good philosophers left, uh, John Gray, um, who wrote this sort of devastating piece on Zizek being like, okay, I've, I've read everything that Zizek has, uh, has written and he directly contradicts himself because he doesn't actually have a point of view. He doesn't have an argument. He doesn't have any sort of like intellectual center. He just reacts to things and he says it in a way that makes people think that he's being, that Very he's really contemplated this yeah. thing. Um, but he hasn't, he doesn't, he never, he doesn't have any content to anything that he's saying. All right, y'all. So that is the end of part one. Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good.